Even as believers, we often suffer pain from the effects of our sin, or the sin of others. And Satan uses this pain to deceive us into believing lies. This is Nita Erlene, and you are listening to the TRC Ministries podcast. The vision of TRC Ministries is to see individuals fulfill their calling under the authority of the Church, using the resources of the Kingdom of God. Today we continue our series, Putting on the Easy Yoke, and we will look at the importance of seeing ourselves as God sees us. It is when we understand the three universal needs we have as humans, believe that God has met these needs in us, and value ourselves as God values us, that we are freed from the bondage of pain that Satan wants to keep us in, and are able to show grace to ourselves and to others. Here is Tori Bjorklund, President of TRC Ministries, teaching at Caravan Fellowship in Part 5 of Putting on the Easy Yoke. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 4. This is Jesus beginning his public ministry. And he's back in his hometown, or area anyway. So he's in Nazareth, his hometown, where he'd been brought up. And verse 16 really gives us the background. It was his custom. He customarily went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Okay? And he stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book and he found the place where it was written. And he, he reads this. This is verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Isn't this Joseph's son? And I gave you a little bit of the context and we're, in a little way we're kind of ripping it out of its context here. And I really want to I really want to focus on this passage that Jesus read and his reasoning potentially for reading it. And and I want to break it out just a little bit. There's several words in there that are used. Now he's reading from the book of Isaiah, which was probably in Hebrew. And he was reading it probably in Hebrew. And it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the good news, the gospel, to the poor. Now, the word that we have translated in English as poor, it means depressed in mind or circumstances. Depressed in mind or circumstances. This is the same word. Now, let me pause for a second. What we have was that Luke wrote in was in Greek. So we have the Greek word, but then we find the same Greek word being used when Jesus spoke about blessed are the poor 
in spirit is the way some of our translations translate that one word, poor in spirit. It isn't poor in noumena, as, as, which would be the Greek word. That spirit word isn't there, but that's the interpretation. In Luke, it just says, blessed are the poor, in Luke chapter 6. The word is also used by Paul in Galatians 4, 9, when he says, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless things? The translation there, worthless. And I really wanted to point this out. Well, let's grab one other one, though. Jesus, in Revelation chapter 3, says, You say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. You do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This, this word carries more than just not having money. He came to preach the good news to the depressed in mind and circumstances. Brokenhearted is another word that we have here. He says that some use the word downtrodden. That downtrodden down below there means to be crushed, those who are crushed. This idea of release that he talks about, let's see, release to the captives, he says here, it means freedom or pardon and the captives is a prisoner of war so it's not just somebody who is under the penalty of law but a prisoner of war it was a special kind of a captive what is communicated here is the idea of amnesty for the rebels who had been taken captive as captives of war so I want to also point out one other thing here. If you actually read this, if you actually read this in Isaiah, you would see that he stopped in the middle of, a, of the verse right there. If you, you read it in that sentence, it says, To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. But he just stopped there right in the middle of a sentence, and he sat down. I think he did it for more than just effect. I believe that he will come with reference to the vengeance, the day of vengeance, but he hadn't come at that point with reference to the day of vengeance. And so he left that off purposefully. So I want to talk about this whole idea of Jesus coming to proclaim good news. Several years ago, as we were thinking about what we would be doing with the Regeneration Center, and we were doing strategic planning at that time as well, um, I spent a significant amount of time researching accepted best practices for helping people who are caught up in addictions. And I learned that there's one thing that the experts agree on. There isn't much. There's all kinds of approaches. But there's one thing that the experts agree on, and that is the most important aspect to successful treatment is helping people heal their pain. That's one thing that they, how they go about doing that, people will argue about. But that it needs to be done is something that they agree on. Unless we help people deal with their pain in their lives, they will not successfully focus on anything else. Now, 
the pain and this destruction that has been heaped upon people who are caught up in addiction is not unique to that group. And that's one thing I want to point out to us today. It's not unique. There are people who have not gone into addiction who also have pain and have experienced destruction in their life. And as I began to evaluate the issues that the people in addictions uh, need help with, I began to realize that I was seeing these very same issues throughout even our Christian culture, throughout the churches. The emotional hurt that was driving the destructive behavior in addicted people was also at work all around us. I went and spoke at several churches at this time, and I shared this. And it was surprising to me how many people came up afterwards and began telling me their story and telling me people who I had known, who I had no inkling that they were struggling, began telling me about hurts that they experienced. One lady, an elderly lady, came up and she shared with me about pain that she had been carrying since childhood and had not shared with anybody, including her husband. The fact that the people in the Church of Jesus Christ are struggling with pain resonated so much that many of them felt compelled to tell me their story. Now, I shared a little bit of my story last week, very little bit of it, but I, I also have carried pain in my life, and many of you as well. Many of you might even feel ashamed about the pain that you experience because your life has been so good, you don't feel that it's right to have the pain you have. And let me just say that that's sick. When we feel ashamed because we have pain, then we don't think we deserve to have that pain. Just think about that. I was going through some of my uh, old papers many years ago. I came across my seventh grade report card. And I had A's and B's, and S's for satisfactory on <laughs> some classes, in the first half of my seventh grade year. And I had D's and F's and U's for unsatisfactory in my second semester of my seventh grade year. And I didn't know it at the time until I saw that on my report card. It reports to the parents, presumably, the number of hours of detention that you reported and the number of hours remaining, of which I had 20-some hours remaining at the end of that seventh grade year. What happened between my first semester and my second semester? That was the year that my parents divorced. My life, it was like somebody threw a hand grenade into my family at that point, into my life. And I didn't know it at the time. You know, you're just living your life. That's your life. You're just, you, you don't have any other reference. But looking back on it, you see the impact of what's going on with hindsight. Now, many of us have not suffered the, the emotional damage of divorce, but some of us have. 
Many people probably can say, well, there's been times when I've felt like giving up on my relationship and haven't. That brings its own pain. Many of you have seen men and women that you considered to be solid Christian people give up on their relationship and bail out. Some of you know our friends, Naomi's best friend, who didn't share with Naomi when she decided to leave her husband, but left her husband. Completely a shocker, just an absolute complete shocker to us. And in these cases, the pain just became more than they could bear. And I remember that's what my, my mother said many years later. She wrote me a letter and apologized for leaving the way that she did. And in explanation and not excuse, just said, the pain in my life just became more than I could bear. There may be some here who wonder if they can continue to live in the pain that they're experiencing and have not really shared it, or maybe have shared it. Statistically, each day, particularly those of you who are going to college now, going back to school, statistically each day we likely encounter several people who were abused in their childhood in various forms of abuse, many of whom have never shared their experience, even with their closest friends or their spouse, their loved ones. And these are the types of issues that people face regularly. And it's easy for us to consider people with drug and alcohol addictions to be quite different from us, but I don't think that's how we should see the situation. I don't think that's how we should view it. Addictions are simply destructive, sinful behaviors that seem to control you more than you control them. Now just think about that. Have you experienced sinful destruction behaviors that seem to control you more than you control them? I have. Of course, I've experienced addictions too, or at least by the definition of it. Uh, I have been diagnosed with addictions by the basis that they diagnose that. But I've had plenty of other situations in my life that seem more control of me than I am of them. And when you look at somebody, like if I look back at my life and I look back to the times when I was using and, and doing the things I was doing that were very destructive, if you, if you look at it objectively, you have to wonder, what is that person thinking? Why, you know, the Proverbs talks about like a dog returning to his vomit. You look at that situation and you say, what is that person thinking? What causes otherwise intelligent people to act so irrationally? The answer is really quite clear. It's pain. Pain causes us to do things that the clear mind would not otherwise do. We in pain are attempting to deal with pain through various means of self-medication, distraction, and other things. And I believe that this is the captivity that Jesus was talking about when he said, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. I believe that this is the captivity that Jesus was talking about in John 8. And elsewhere, I believe he was speaking of those who have suffered from the sin of others and their own when he said he has sent me to free those 
who are downtrodden. And I believe the church needs to continue to fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ. His mission was to bring healing to those in a depressed condition. That's the good news to those who are in the depressed condition and to bring freedom to those held by sin, both theirs and others. Jason shared about his life being difficult and dark, and a big part of that was because of the sin of somebody else. I shared my story a little bit last week. A big part of that was because of the sin of somebody else, but I continued in that bondage to that experience because of the pain that I carried with me. Now, I've talked about this a long time ago, probably not recently, maybe it's so long ago, people like Emma might not even remember it, maybe even Luke might not, but I believe that there are three universal needs that God has given to mankind. God has created mankind in a needy way. And those three universal needs are a need, and I want to use the word be convinced. I want you to, to realize that each one of these, we need to be convinced that we are loved and accepted without condition. That's the first one. We need to be convinced that we are loved and accepted without condition. We need to be convinced that we are valued, that we are important, that we are special. We need to be convinced that we are not alone, that someone is for us, someone is with us. These are three very important aspects of human life that God has placed it within us as a part of his creation in order that he might meet those needs in order that we might reach out to him, as Paul said to the Athenians, that we might grope for him and perhaps find him, though he is not far from any one of us. These needs drive us. I believe God gave the family and the church as a means for him through these institutions. He provided them as a means for him to meet those needs. We need to be convinced that we are loved without condition. We need to be convinced that we are valued, that we are important, we are special. And we need to be convinced that we're not alone. You see, as I told my story last week, these three things went together they fell apart together, and they drove me into the conviction, the being convinced that I had no value. The converse, though, is true, also true. They go together. And I believe that God gave the family and the church as a means for him to meet these needs. And it's important that we understand that we here can only meet those needs in other people to the degree that those needs have been met in ourselves. Now, I want to set this idea up for us to think about. It takes a free man to release a slave. 
The slaves can't release one another. It takes a free man to release a slave. When those needs are met, we become free to learn and to teach. When those needs are met, we don't have a need to make others feel inferior. We have the wherewithal. We're not looking for our own validation and it gives us the wherewithal to help provide the validation that other people need. We can accept correction without defensiveness when those needs are met. We become teachable. We don't take it as an insult. But in our culture, when those three needs are met, we call that self-esteem. If a person has self-esteem. Now, I grew up in circles where self-esteem was a bad thing. Have you ever kind of picked up that message? You don't need self-esteem. What you need is humility. I remember hearing a, a sermon on that. I was taught that the idea of humility is viewing oneself as lowly. Did you ever hear that message? I don't believe this is a biblical concept. I believe that the biblical concept is the correct view of oneself is God's view of oneself. The correct view is the view that God takes. We are to view ourselves according to the truth. Now, the untruth can go on either side of that view of God. Paul said this, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. That's Romans 12.3. So when you're thinking of yourself, you must use sound judgment. When thinking of others, you should compare them to yourself favorably. That's the idea. Sound judgment is seeing things as God sees them. When we have the correct view of ourselves, how do we see ourselves then? We see ourselves as lovable, as important, as valuable, as part of something bigger than ourselves, as a part of God's plan in this creation, as not being alone. It's like when Jesus said, five sparrows are bought for two cents, and yet not one of those falls without the Heavenly Father. That's the idea, is that God is with the fallen, the crushed, the bruised reed. If we don't see ourselves that way, we are not believing and living according to the truth. I think what self-esteem really should be is God-esteem. Esteeming ourselves the way God esteems us. That means owning our sin, but recognizing our value. That means seeing our failures, but recognizing our purpose. And if we don't think it's important for people to have the proper view of themselves, we discourage any attempt by others to align their thinking to this truth. And that's, that's what I heard growing up. I want to read you from uh, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. He says, to sum it up, whenever, whenever one of the apostles says to sum it up, we probably should pay attention, right? Let all be harmonious, 
sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. By the way, doesn't that sound like the Sermon on the Mount? For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For, quote, let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile and let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, end quote. Peter was quoting, I believe, from uh, Proverbs. So to be harmonious, sympathetic, kind-hearted, Brotherly, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. What kind of people can do that? It takes powerful people to do that. It takes powerful people to be able to, to carry out what Peter was talking about. People who have a strong sense of self-worth. People who are insecure lash back. People who are insecure get offended rather than bless. I think there are two ways to keep from returning insult for insult. One is you can bite your tongue. That's commonly the way we're taught. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. It only works for a little while. Eventually, the pain gets too much and we, let the, <laughs> we open our mouth. The pain of biting our tongue. We internalize the pain and we let it fester into bitterness and depression. And then we find ourselves where the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't let any bitter root grow up within you. That's what happens when you're biting your tongue. Or you can keep from being hurt by understanding the truth about yourself and not taking the insult or the pain personal. Not taking that insult to heart not believing the condemnation that others might heap upon you. Knowing that oftentimes those hurtful words or actions were actually them expressing their hurt and their pain. As my mother pointed out to me years later, she was blinded to the, what was happening in our family because of her own pain that she was experiencing. When Christ read from Isaiah, I pointed out that he stopped in the middle of that verse. And later he would come to say, I did not come into this world to condemn the world. Certainly that day will come. That day is on its way. But he said right now his ministry is about preaching the good news to the hurting. And I think that's why it was recorded that everybody said, they were speaking well of him and wondering about the gracious words that were coming from his lips. I believe God wants us to become a church who can walk beside those who are downtrodden, those who are crushed, and lift them up. I believe that God wants us to be like that. Not just caravan, but caravan. You could say it generally, but we are that church. Now, I'm not talking about that God wants us all to become counselors and help people in their crises. But I'm talking about giving grace. And the first place that we give grace 
is to ourselves. Now that sounds a little bit strange. But here's the thing. Believing the grace of God applies to me. As I mentioned, and why I was talking about this the previous two sessions, that was the most difficult part of it. Believing that God was not so disgusted with me that he wanted nothing to do with me. Jesus said to love your neighbor in what way? In the same way that you love yourself. So I'm talking about giving grace first with ourselves and then also with those who are around us. I'm talking about recognizing that we are not despicable me. We are not the despicable one that we view ourselves and how we think God views ourselves. See, we know our dirty secrets. This is the thing that I struggled with the most. When I was a young child experiencing the abuse of an older man, I believed that I was responsible and I despised myself. And I carried that shame and that guilt for most of my life. I'm talking about recognizing that we're not that despicable person and removing the contempt we have for ourselves and refusing to adopt contempt for anybody else. I'm also talking about learning how to be a disciple and how to come along other people and help them to be disciples. I'd like to see us become a community that meets those three basic needs. The need to be loved without condition, the need to be valued, to be viewed as important and special, and to be part of something bigger than ourselves, that we're not alone in this world, that we truly are a group of people traveling together through this world in hostile ter territory, as Dave would tell us. I'd like to see us become a community that meets those needs, not only in the church, but in the families. I want us to become a community that encourages one another and builds each other up and helps each other do the same. I want to pursue those gracious words of Jesus. And let's make sure we understand them and allow them to affect our speech, that we might have those gracious words for one another, seasoned as they were with grace, as, as Paul talks about. Our speech should be seasoned, as it were, with grace. Let's take that view of ourselves and others, that same view that Jesus has. Adopt that as our view. Now, I'm, I don't intend right now to talk about how we're going to go about doing that as a church, but that's really what this series is about, and we'll be going through that. I mean, I'm not going to do it right now, but we'll be going through some of those things about taking on that easy yoke, but it begins with recognizing that God values us individually. And no matter, even as believers, when we fail him, it has no impact on the value he has for us. It has no impact on his desire to transform us and deliver us. And we shouldn't let the enemy bring that impact. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you loved the world so much that you gave your one and only Son. 
begotten Son. Lord, what often holds us back is believing that you truly love us that much. And I just pray that your love for us would overwhelm our thoughts and ideas of our despicableness that we could recognize, as Paul said, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Just, Lord, just burn that into our consciousness so that we don't run away from you in shame, but toward you in wonder and awe. Help us to have hope that you will be working to will and to accomplish what you desire to accomplish in us. Help us to have grace for ourselves and others around us. Help us to give that grace to each other as a gift from Jesus Christ. And I ask it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And for more information on TRC Ministries or to contact us, go to www.regenerationcenter.org.